if the movie Back to the Future, the television show Mythbusters, and the character Bill Nye the Science Guy could all have a child together, a three-parent child in the form of an animated show, how would you describe it? It's heartfelt, it's dark, it will make you laugh, it'll make you cry, and it will make you wonder about things, which is what I found for the book, that it makes you wonder about science. That's Matt Brady talking about the animated show Rick and Morty. Brady is author of a new book about the science in that show. The book is titled The Science of Rick and Morty, the unofficial guide to Earth's stupidest show, which published earlier this year, 2019. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, an interview with Brady, who uses pop culture as a tool for teaching science in his high school classroom. I'm Robert Frederick. There are a lot of the science of articles, journals, and books out there. There's even a the science of website, an educational resource that uses pop culture to help people learn about or teach STEM subjects. STEM being science, technology, engineering, and math. Matt Brady co-founded that website. He's done that before, co-founding Newsarama, which covers the comics industry and where Brady served as editor-in-chief. A decade ago, Brady left Newsarama and became a science teacher. Now he's written a book that combines the two, science and comics. It's titled The Science of Rick and Morty the unofficial guide to Earth's stupidest show, which published earlier this year, 2019. What is the show, Rick and Morty? Of course, I'll let Matt Brady explain. We spoke in his classroom at Atkins High School in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Here's our interview, which I started by asking him to introduce himself. I'm Matt Brady. I wrote The Science of Rick and Morty. As the title goes, The Unofficial Guide to Earth's Stupidest Show. If you have problems with the title, I did not give it that title, those final words. That was the British publisher that gave it those, that calling it Earth's Stupidest Show. And I've told people that you need to say stupidest, kind of like a British person would say it, and you realize, oh, it's not an insult. But I'm also a high school teacher at Atkins High in Winston-Salem. I teach chemistry. Occasionally, I teach physics. And I also teach a class at Wake Forest University on science communication. For those unfamiliar with the Cartoon Network show, Rick and Morty, give us a little sense of what that show is. It is irreverent. It is hilarious. It is philosophical. It is scientific. It's the adventures of a grandfather scientist and his grandson as they go through the multiverse and get in all kinds of troubles. It's heartfelt, it's dark, it will make you laugh, it'll make you cry, and it will make you wonder about things, which is what I found for the book, that it makes you wonder about science. They, they certainly aren't shy with the science. They show a healthy respect towards science, using it for the plot or as something kind of cool that they can reveal. It's not a show for everyone, but it, it has a lot of fans. Now we're here in your classroom and there are several other examples looking around of pop cultural references that I understand you use in teaching science. What are some of those? Well, I have poster of The Flash. The man who can run really, really fast. That's him. 
yeah, uh, Back to the Future, Black Panther, several different action figures, uh, Captain America Shield, uh, Thor's hammer. Is that use of pop culture from your background before becoming a science teacher? Uh, yeah. Before I became a science teacher, I was uh, a entertainment journalist, I guess. Uh, this was after I left graduate school. I was in working on my PhD in physiology, pharmacology, and I started writing for magazines and websites back in the day. But I co-founded Newsarama.com, which grew to be the biggest comic book entertainment news website on the internet, and did that for about 12 years. Won some prizes, uh, did some good journalism, I feel, on that site. But I finally left that after we sold the company and wanted to get back into science and back into teaching. When I got into teaching, I jumped from not teaching at all to going into a Title I school. Title I is a federal program which is designated Title I because you have a certain percentage of students who are free and reduced lunch, on free and reduced lunch, which is also an indicator of poverty and also an indicator of a high minority population. So there I was, new to the classroom, and teaching in a school, high minority population. I am middle-aged white guy. I had not much in common with my students, and they were going to be defensive. They were teenagers. It was only natural. So I quickly needed to find some kind of bridge that could kind of get us connected, some kind of common language that we all spoke, and pop culture happened to be it. I taught physical science when I started, and that's kind of an amalgam of physics and chemistry. And one of my first worksheets was a velocity and speed worksheet with the flash. And it was some crazy numbers, but it got my students to look at me thinking, this guy might be a little bit more interesting. And so when I saw the effect that that had, I started using it more, both in worksheets or examples that we pulled science out of something, or just quick mentions and casual mentions, which had the effect for my students that they got to see me as a person rather than just a teacher. And that relationship has helped to let the students kind of relax a bit and start worrying about the material rather than just I'm in school, I'm in class. My room, as you, you mentioned, has a lot of pop culture references around it. I kind of think of it, I like to decorate it like this as a kind of a safe space, a place where they can relax, a place where they see stuff that they're familiar with, that they're comfortable with. And I think it works. It's de definitely a different tone in my room than perhaps in other teachers' classrooms. And so we can often go off on side conversations of which Marvel movie was the best, which Captain America movie was your favorite. But at the same time, I do use it to get the ideas across. I want to follow up a bit about the transition back to becoming a science teacher, as you put it. Well, I could go back. Both my parents were teachers. I'm originally from Western Pennsylvania and grew up in a teaching household. My wife and I met in graduate school. We were in Charleston, South Carolina, and we both were getting our master's in marine biology. When we moved to Winston, my wife was working at Wake Forest University as a lab manager in the biology department. And she was kind of doing the grant to grant to grant thing and realized that might not be the most stable thing as we were starting a family and looking just at the future. So she transitioned over to teaching. She went into teaching science in middle school through the lateral entry program that allows you to go into a classroom if you have enough science or enough math in a critical need area. You get your pedagogy coursework and anything else that you need out of the way after you get into the classroom. And so I had seen her do that, and I had seen that 
it was very re rewarding for her. So when I sold Newsarama or when we sold Newsarama, it took a little while, but I realized that working for yourself and then working at the same company when it's owned by somebody else was not the same thing. And so I knew I wanted to get out and get back into teaching. Also, I mentioned it in the acknowledgments of the book. There was, this was around the time that Mythbusters was on and that show really, really influenced me and showed me that you could be very enthusiastic, unabashedly passionate about science and making things and helping people understand things. And I thought that's, that's the kind of teacher I could be. And that's the kind of teacher I, I hope I am. And why I went into a Title I school, I just, I needed a job. And I applied to all the schools in Winston-Salem for Scythe County District. And Parkland High School was the first one to call me back. And so I went in there and had the job a day and a half later. As you noted at that school, you needed to connect with your students. Is there in your mind a lack of science curriculum that allows teachers to do that and that you have to sort of invent things on your own? Do you wish there was a more national trend to do this kind of work and connecting science with pop culture? Or is it really better to have the freedom as a teacher to choose what it is that your students might connect with best? Well. In North Carolina, we, we have the North Carolina state standards for our different subject areas. We're not on next generation science standards. And so we have full curriculum. We have the full, all the standards. I think I feel like, I don't know if it's a growing feeling among science teachers that there needs to be some way to better communicate it, make it relevant to our students. And you know, that's not the Department of Public Instruction's job necessarily to make it relevant to our students. They're just putting out, here's what we expect you to cover in your classroom in this particular subject area. So I kind of took up the reins of, well, I got to find some way to make it relevant and build that relationship with my students at the same time. And that's where pop culture fit in just perfectly. So who is this book for? Is it for your high school students? Is it for their parents? If it's for my high school students, I, I don't really loudly proclaim it to be for my students. As I like to say, I like a, a roof over my head and warm food. Rick and Morty is a very R-rated cartoon series. And so my students know exactly who it is. And I think I've kind of reached a certain level of, you can't see my fingers doing the air quotes here, but coolness with my students because I know about Rick and Morty and have written a book about Rick and Morty. But it's it's not something I'd use necessarily in the classroom that much, if if at all. It's for the general public. Yeah, it's for the the parents of my students. It's for my students perhaps out of out of the classroom. It's for my former students who are in college now or you know, working now, but it's, it's for everybody who has an interest in science. If you've seen an episode of Rick and Morty where they're traveling to different versions of a universe, the, the multiverse, and ever wondered, is that a real thing? Could that be a real thing? Then, then this book is for you. I like to think of this book as it's, it, it goes with a cartoon series as kind of a Trojan horse that Rick and Morty gets into your brain and you accept it and you kind of feel some ownership being a fan of the animated series. And then this book is the science content that just when you're comfortable with it, you pick up this book or you find this book and you go, oh, I understand that because on this episode they did X, Y, and Z. Here's a chapter that explains all about living in a simulation. So 
Yeah, certainly not my classroom. I, I think I'd have a tough time defending it to an administrator if they came in and I was watching a Rick and Morty clip to explain something, but uh, just about everybody else, I think would really like this book. Of the many topics that you do cover, which one was the hardest to write about? Technically, the hardest one to write about was, well, this would be for anybody that wants to be a writer. I broke the rules that your toughest chapter is the one that you're not supposed to put off to the end. I did put it off to the end. And that was uh, the last chapter in the book about technology and kind of the flow and the growth of technology. That was just hard because I was dumb about it. But hard in terms of content was probably the earlier chapters, such as Alien Life or Evolution. There's you could write textbooks. You ha people have written textbooks about alien life and evolution. And here I was trying to, you know, my editor is saying it can only be this many pages. And I'm thinking, well, I'm just getting out of the, the Mesozoic. Come on. I mean, we need more room. So condensing everything while making it interesting and makes sense on those first couple big chapters, that was a challenge and it was kind of tough. Well, I'd like you to read a selection. I've pulled out here from the chapter on time and time's origins. Sure. It's too easy a joke and too unfunny to say that time has been going on since time immemorial, so let's not. Instead, let's look at the actual serious question within physics of when time started. The easy answer is that time started at the point of the first cause and effect. Without time, there's no before or after, and if nothing is happening, then there's no reason that time would exist. The Big Bang is something that happened, the event where we can clearly see the before and after that kicked off all of the befores and afters since. But that might not be correct if, for example, we consider the possibility of multiple Big Bangs throughout a pre-existing cosmos, as we discussed in our examination of multiverses, then time, as a concept of before and after, existed prior to the Big Bang that started our universe. Another view looks at the rebounding universe model, suggesting the infinite timeline of inflation and deflation of universes, which likewise sets up before as before our universe. The point here is that while there are some ideas, it's difficult to pin down just when time began. Given that we have no means of observing the universe or larger cosmos prior to the Big Bang, scientists have set the start of time at the Big Bang about 13.8 billion years ago. Just as physicists can't pin down an exact beginning point of time, trying to define time has proven to be equally difficult, almost like trying to hold sand in your fist. Actually, holding sand in your fist is much easier than defining time. For something that seems so simple, time holds many, many mysteries. Why does it flow? Why does it only go in one direction? And why are we pulled along for the ride? Why can't we remember the future? Why can't we move through time the way we move through space? Simple concept mind-blowing questions. Thank you. <laughs> There's often a tendency in science communication and in talking about science of blowing people's minds, of gee whiz, isn't that amazing kind of thing. Was that the goal here? It wasn't so much the goal, but it was in my mind. I wrote this book kind of the same way of how I run my class. If I was just giving a pure lecture class instead of a lab class such as chemistry, this would very much be my style where I like to lay the groundwork and the foundation and then take my students up to the edge of the cliff and then just push them off. 
We have moments in class, I call them stoner moments, where it always gets a laugh the first time I say it in the semester, but they are these gee whiz, these bigger moments where I've seen the students just kind of lean back and go, whoa. What people who are high on marijuana or other drugs are known to say. Exactly, that's it. And, and it's one of those kind of Mr. Brady walked up to the edge type of thing where you see the students look at each other and say, did he just say that? And I just let it go, and I keep going on with the, the, the science thought that we're talking about there. I don't, I don't pause and let it, oh, he said, no, we just keep going. For instance, we're getting towards uh, talking about the periodic table, and I think we can, we can lose that kind of grandeur, that, that amazingly big picture of science in classrooms where, well, it's over there on my wall, the, the periodic table, and students just learn it. You know, this is a family, this is a group, these are the alkalines, these are the alkaline earth metals, these are the halogens. But then, once they're comfortable with it, I like to push them a little bit farther and say, okay, where did they come from? And it's something that if you just stay with the curriculum, you never really explore, you never really think about, well, where did the elements come from? And then we go into the, we are all star stuff, and they came from the hearts of stars, and the gold in your jewelry was at the heart of a star that exploded billions and billions of years ago, and the quote, I believe it's from maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson or Lawrence Krauss, of the, the carbon atoms in your right hand probably came from a different star than the carbon atoms in your left hand. And that's just enough to get my students to do the, whoa, and I like to think it hooks them and pulls them along because this is, they never know when we're going to stumble on something that's just amazing like that. So yeah, the gee whiz moments, they're, they're peppered throughout the book, but they're also peppered throughout my classes. Science has so many gee whiz mo moments, and I think we do ourselves a disservice if we just push them by the wayside because we have to get down this road and teach them A, B, and C for the test, which wants to see if they know A, B, and C. At the same time, it seems like the ultimate purpose is to get them to start looking at, say, pop cultural things with this scientific view in mind, like, is that possible? Could that happen? Or was that not part of your thinking? That is part of my thinking as well. With, with Rick and Morty, with any kind of pop cultural reference that I do use, I think it's largely, it's the story hook. If you can put a story to science, it helps. It helps tremendously. You have that beginning, middle, end type of thing to it. But the pop culture, they have ownership of it. And they feel that they kind of, that weird fandom way, that they kind of own a bit of this. And so if I'm doing something with it, then they need to know it because that's something that they own. So if I like, if I like Fast and the Furious and we're doing a Fast and the Furious lab, then I need to be in on this and understand this and be sure I'm doing my best work. And as I mentioned in the, the introduction, you know, kind of my dream as a teacher is to hopefully inspire students along these pathways with the help of pop culture and someday maybe have someone who's winning a Nobel because they prove that multiverse, the multiverse exists and someone says, where did you get this idea to go into this in the first place? And they kind of look down with a smile and say, did you ever hear of this show called Rick and Morty? That's, that's my dream, that we can imagine this better, brighter future with pop culture kind of pushing us and needling us along and showing the things it can be. Matt Brady, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Matt Brady is the author of The Science of Rick and Morty, the unofficial guide to Earth's stupidest show, a book he described like the show 
as the offspring of Back to the Future, Mythbusters, and Bill Nye the Science Guy. You can find pictures from my visit to Brady's classroom at Atkins High School in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. They're embedded in an associated blog post online at americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Robert Frederick. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.